0: you can think about this that there is a level of adaptiveness
1: adaptability adaptiveness adaptiveness
0: (laughs) in the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation
1: on scientific things it's intuition it's intuition
0: which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things Tonight, in this episode, we're going to be talking about individuals with underlying fragile ego who display overconfident and often cocky and aristocratic style, that is people with narcissistic personality disorder. So you're listening to Two Shrinks Pod. My name is Hunter Mulcair, and I'm joined by Amy Donaldson, who's sitting across from me. Hi. Uh, and uh, we are going to, for the next hour or so, take you right through uh, narcissistic personality disorder and with the focus on... Understanding the disorder and understanding what it might be like if you are a psychotherapist working with someone with narcissistic personality disorder, and also helping you to understand this disorder because it's obviously a very uh, very interesting topic at this current time in the uh, state of the world hmm. for obvious reasons. So, and it's and it's just generally a very interesting disorder and brings up a couple of issues around how we characterize what mental health actually is. Yeah, so it should be a really, really interesting episode. I certainly had a lot of fun reading. Yeah, about me it. too. But did you Did you enjoy doing it?
1: Yeah, I went down various sort of wormholes and emerged days later. Yeah, <laughs> it just which always tells me that I'm doing something right.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I certainly found my latent narcissism just like activated, <laughs> and I but but it was actually quite good because it made me I was motivated. I was like, well, I'm this is really interesting. i going to be grateful. <laughs> So, uh, so listeners beware <laughs> Listeners beware. so uh, before we get started just quickly um you can follow us on twitter uh, at two shrinks pod um also you can also email us at two at pod at com, and we also have a website uh two dot so uh where we uh, post the episodes and also have links of the show in the episode description so you can access that on your phone if you're listening on your phone or if you look us up online so so uh, Amy, will not you, where are you going to start?
1: The first thing I looked into was about the relationship with someone with narcissism, particularly in a therapeutic context. Uh, so I think that one of the things that often comes up when you're talking to other clinicians about personality disorders, but particularly some of these cluster B ones that we've t- been talking about, so narcissism, borderline antisocial, there's kind of a bit of a trepidation about working with these people and i think a lot of that is about how the relationship plays out in the room and how you feel when you're working with someone Mm. who has this disorder Mm. it's the same thing that people in their life will feel interacting with them so i thought i'd start off with essentially why is narcissistic pd so difficult to treat yeah so some of those kind of issues that come up
0: because the most common comment that I here, and this is from like a range of different people who are from inexperienced to very experienced, is I hate working with narcissistic yeah. people.
1: And it's quite, it's reasonably rare, which I think we'll, you know, just sort of touch on at different points in terms of it's rare to work with people who have a full-blown narcissistic personality disorder mm. in treatment because that narcissism kind of protects them from acknowledging that they might need treatment. So, it's sort of, it's often the case that they're referred by other people or it's things like a relationship where the partner will say, if you don't get some help, mm. I'm leaving
0: or. They present with a drug and alcohol problem that's. Exactly. Um, Caused some work problems. Yeah. Yeah. I've certainly come across that. Yeah.
1: Rather than seeking treatment for issues with. The narcissism, which is probably different to something like, say, borderline, where it's distressing to have those symptoms. Mm. So, um,
0: I would argue narcissism is distressing. They just don't. They uh, just don't tap into it. They don't recognise it as as such. Yeah.
1: So one of the reasons why it's difficult to treat is that there's a big difference between internal and external experience with narcissism. I'm just going to call it narcissism for the sake of experience. shortening the yeah. <laughs> word jumble but um, we're really focusing on for this bit anyway people who have narcissistic personality disorder so there's a difference between their internal fragility and then this external tendency to promote themselves so it's kind of hard as a clinician to tap into what's actually going on because there's kind of a gap Um, it's also difficult because the motivations behind how they're presenting themselves is about promoting themselves so often in therapy people come because there's an issue that they're wanting to work on whereas with narcissism what you might have is someone saying that everything's great that they're doing fantastically and they don't know why it is that they're having to come there
0: Mm, and then also dismissing the therapist
1: exactly yeah and then there's kind of this secondary mechanism where they're trying to prevent any errors or any negative evaluation so trying to sort of make sure they don't make mistakes or don't come out with anything that could mean that they were judged negatively by the therapist. Mm. Yeah. Uh, The other thing is that their capabilities and deficits fluctuate a fair bit. So even though it's a personality disorders tend to be quite stable, that day-to-day, session-to-session minute to minute, someone can have varying levels of insight
0: Mm. or not. It flips backwards and forwards.
1: Yeah. So you might think that you're getting somewhere and have a bit of a plan of where you're going and then the next time you see them, things seem to have gone the other direction.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: In terms of the interpersonal dynamic and... Then with counter-transference, it can mean that the therapist gets either pulled into kind of fueling that narcissism, like, you know, providing a lot of compliments or saying what a great job that they're doing in a way that a lot of therapists would validate their client's experience, but it might go a little bit too far. Or it can go the other way where people become overly critical and kind of react against that everything's fine kind of yeah, right. facade. And so it's finding a balance between the two where you can validate someone's experience without and highlight where there might be gaps or issues mm. without being pulled into it, one it, or the other.
0: Well, because they, a narcissist will, like, if you make too big a deal of the problem or whatever the problem mm. is, they're going like, oh, you know, uh, things difficult work. If you go too far, they shut down on it. Yeah. Like and so you can't validate someone in the normal way
1: yeah, so it's kind of yeah holding that middle ground
0: and, and the other other thing like I think I've definitely had experience with people who have had trays of it yeah. where they they keep coming back to therapy and you're kind of a little bit perplexed mm. as to what's going on like it as in they're not really reporting that anything's wrong yeah and I don't but they keep feel like out. we're work like it's not like we're working on a clear goal, but they keep coming
1: mm yeah.
0: Yeah. And yeah, and so somehow like you can engage them, but then... like,
1: You're not moving
0: anywhere well, or, or you don't well, there's feel mov- like... Well, there's movement, but like you're not really sure you know what that movement is. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: There's some sort of parallel process like, going on yeah, that you're not aware
0: of. They're not like, they're not talking about what's changed. Yeah. But they keep coming. Yeah. So...
1: Yeah. And I think that like that's part of that whole thing of being quite... They can be quite unaware of the difficulties in their own interactions Mm. and their perception of others and things like that. So there's kind of this gap between what's going on and how they're perceiving things. So I came across some research about how people with um, narcissistic PD will describe that they're great at social interactions. But in actual fact, the people around them will go, well, no, that's not the case. I wasn't listened to or things didn't go the way that they thought it did. But that kind of grandiose thing overlays it. There's also a tendency for reversible perspective taking, which I hadn't really heard much about before. But so what, essentially, so what do you mean? well, so what it is is that the client will seem like they're internalizing what the therapist is saying. So they kind of say back the same phrases that you've said or kind of seem like they're taking on. Your perspective, yeah, and seem like they're kind of integrating that in, but actually they don't change or integra- change anything about themselves or integrate it into what's going on for them. Mm. It's kind of more of a parroting and making it seem like the therapy's progressing or that things are shifting hmm. rather than actually making meaningful change yeah. Yeah. The other thing is that the core features of this disorder create distance. So the whole idea of it, a whole, um, like the core feature of it is I'm superior to everyone. So therefore, how can you help me as a therapist? Yeah. There's that no way that you can um, understand my perspective if I'm so far above everyone mm. else. And
0: also but bit like if someone is understanding their perspective, then you're criticizing their self. Yeah. Because their perspective is their self and and I'll explain this a bit more later on it like it becomes a massive crisis mm. like if for them yep. structurally and emotionally so.
1: yeah it's not seen as a positive like it would be for other people
0: do you have do you have a particular countertransference reaction to narcissistic individuals?
1: Uh, I think probably defensive yeah but i I think I get quite stuck. Like, I feel quite stuck. Mm. Um, I It's sort of like I'm doing a lot of mental calculations but not really being present yeah. in the room. It's that kind of, I've got to figure my way out of this. How yeah. about you?
0: Uh, my Mine's probably more attack. Yeah. Um, like,
1: take them down a peg or two with their...
0: Yes, like yeah. I want to win. Like, I want to yeah. like outsmart them yeah. and, and demonstrate, to the, demonstrate to them that they are struggling, for example. Mm-hmm. And which is not necessarily the best therapeutic approach no, um,
1: no neither of those kind of yeah reactions, like you know though. like and
0: so that can lead you into being uh probably too confronting, which could actually be uh therapeutically devastating for mm. that, that person, um and perhaps counter, and then obviously counterproductive to therapy absolutely and retaining them within therapy, so yeah uh, yeah, it's interesting,
1: yeah, and there is a very high dropout rate with. Narcissistic PD. Yeah, I can in imagine. In terms of yeah, drop out of therapy. The the last bit of kind of my list of why is it difficult to treat um, is around difficulty with emotions. So people with this disorder often have trouble describing their own emotions. They have trouble recognizing others' emotional expressions, particularly fear, shame, and anger. So it's hard for them to work out when something's gone wrong or how it's gone wrong because mm. they're not perceiving those facial expressions. Mm. They also have really pronounced feelings of shame and fear, which then triggers that defensiveness. Mm. So that it, when they feel those emotions, they're really intense and then they react against that.
0: They're less, yeah.
1: Yeah, so there's that tendency towards aggression. The other thing that I found was, I mean, we'll talk about the criteria and... and um, about sort of common elements of it, but often um, a lack of empathy is is talked about. And it's interesting. There's been some recent neurological research that suggests that perhaps that they can recognise emotion cognitively, but can't. Um, but that cognitive recognition of someone else's emotion doesn't evoke any sort of empathetic response. Wow. So it's not that the whole process is kind of off. Mm. It's that sort of like don't know what to do with that information. Hmm. And, yeah, it doesn't evoke those same emotional responses as it would for other people, which I found really interesting. Yeah. So essentially all this means that therapy with someone with this disorder can fluctuate between extremes. There can be sort of these little moments of self-reflection or glimpses into how fragile they're going. And then bursts of aggression that are quite, um, you know, defensive and serve to swing the dynamic back. Yeah. To what they're comfortable with, and so it's sort of managing all of those different extremes and how guarded and easily provoked someone with this disorder can be. Yeah. So it's really difficult to find that mid ground that's non-threatening, still engaging, yeah. still has little challenges, but not so much that it flings things out.
0: Yeah, and you can mention like confronting fr- confronting someone in a false sort of narcissistic rage. Yeah. Is like you you would imagine therapy you just need to just like just to, to bear it mm. uh and like in schema therapy like I won't talk much about it today but the in schema therapy they have this like thing of like strike while the iron is cold yeah so if someone acts in a particular awful narcissistic way towards a the therapist or towards others mm. then you wait until say the next session and then you would say so let's review what happened there and so so their their defenses are more a bit more More settled more settled yeah and so you can hopefully sort of build that cognitive insight into what's going on So exactly yeah
1: so the last little bit that I have around sort of alliance and and this relationship is really focusing on that finding that middle ground so everything that I found around this was all about sort of slowly building up an alliance because like you mentioned someone who gets who understands them quickly is threatening someone who kind of says oh I can understand what you're going through or understand that this is difficult for you can be quite threatening so it's kind of building things up slowly and building up a relationship
0: they can reject you right like they'll be like well what can you do for me
1: exactly Yeah. yeah so it's kind of Taking it piece by piece and then repairing things as it comes up. And that they really highlighted that the difficulties with alliance weren't helped by the fact that often people with this disorder have come because of other people. Mm. So there's no internal motivation for seeking treatment. It's kind of like, well, I'm here. 'cause they say I have to be.
0: Yeah. Or you gotta sort of preview your usefulness, I think.
1: Exactly, yeah. Try and find some way, some hook. Yeah. So there's a high dropout rate, um, there's a tendency to disengage, control and provoke the therapist. And so really the only way to balance this out is to try that kind of collaborative middle ground, which is a lot harder than it sounds. It's exactly. yeah. When especially when you've got someone who's provoking those emotional responses in you and that has that tendency to swing either way. It's it's kind of a delicate thing. And and
0: the other thought that I have is that because that's a very different style to therapy generally. Yeah. Because generally it's someone who is, you know, you are supportive and yes, oh, yes, empathizing with them and stuff like that. Mm. And so if you had, say, say if you see six patients or five patients a day. Yeah. So like you're in that mode mm. and then, but then you've got the one that it's got narcissistic traits or look at the full PD, and yeah. you, you're not sort of thinking about it initially.
1: You could easily, you
0: could easily muff it up yeah, straight away. So,
1: cause it's quite an automatic. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I came across this model, interpersonal model, that I found really interesting. So they tested out about how in interpersonal interactions, not just in therapy but out in the world, someone with narcissism perceives the world and then how they react to it. And so they had a hypothesized model and they tested it and found that it was accurate. Yeah. And so this model was that they tend to perceive If they perceive other people as dominant, for example, someone who's taking control or asserting themselves or challenging them, that then that provokes a negative emotional state and then they respond to that with argumentativeness and aggression. Mm -hmm. And so the hostility, therefore, rather than just being a separate kind of trait that could go off at any point, it's reactive and self-regulating so it it serves to bring that system back into balance for them to feel like they're back in control again mm-hmm. and i quite i found that quite a nice way of looking at it that even though a lot of the times these kind of behaviours can be quite confronting, they're there for a reason, mm. like they've developed for some kind of mm. reason, they still serve a yeah. function uh, and, I th- and it's what is that function
0: yeah, and in reading yeah. and in reading for this pod. It was probably conceptually the easiest reading we've done so far. Yeah. It, it's a very simple disorder to understand in terms of, like very, very loosely, and we're going to talk about it, but is that there's sort of defective core beliefs and the grandiosity narcissistic element serves to protect it. Yeah. In, in a very sort of, extremely... Yeah. forms
1: a shell around it. Yeah. It keeps it, yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, the question is, why is that and how does that manifest and, and all yeah. those kinds of things. But really that, like, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Mm. Schemotherapy therapy certainly takes that approach as well. Yeah. So should we go through the criteria? Yeah, let's do it. So the diagnostic criteria for in DSM-5 talk about a pervasive pattern of grandiosity in fantasy or behaviour, a need for admiration and a lack of empathy beginning by adulthood and present in variety of contexts, so not just say at work but like mm. in all aspects of their life and indicated by five or more of these criteria. So what we're going to do is Amy's going to read out what the criteria would be and then I'm going to talk about what the style, like what a narcissistic style would be for that yeah. criteria. So because particularly narcissism, we see a lot of this, uh, of narcissism in every day, but there's a difference between disorder level intensity yeah. and sort of the tray absolutely level. Yeah. intensity. So
1: uh, so the first criteria is a grandiose sense of self importance. So this is someone who exaggerates their achievements and talents. They expect to be recognized as superior without their equal achievements to that. So it's it's not someone who's done really well and then speaks about their achievements. It's someone who there's a gap between those two.
0: Yeah, and so narcissistic style would have healthy self-esteem based on their actual achievements, but place perceived skills at the top end of the spectrum.
1: Mm. The second criteria is to be preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love.
0: So if you have the style, you project confidence, but not omnipotence really, and you, you have proper plans to achieve goals, but there would be the, the confidence would be there.
1: Yeah. Third criteria is that they believe that he or she is special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other special high-status people or institutions.
0: Yeah. So, and a style would prefer the company of others who are talented but wouldn't look down on those who aren't gifted, whereas like narcissists would just look down on other people.
1: Absolutely. Uh, the next one is that they require excessive admiration.
0: Yeah, so and if you were, if you're the style, you'd be able to accept compliments without excessive admiration. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Also, they might have a sense of entitlement, so unreasonable expectations of especially favourable treatment or automatic compliance with his or her expectations.
0: Yeah, and so if you have a style, you're able to express humility because of self confidence, so you, you do have that.
1: Mm hmm. Uh, is interpersonally exploitative, so takes advantage of others to achieve his or her ends
0: yeah it was the style would just play to the strengths of others, not necessarily making excessive demands of someone's time or their effort
1: mm-hmm. uh lacking empathy, so unwilling to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others
0: and so yeah so you'd be able to step back from your own stuff and look or attend to the needs of others if you had the style yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, often envious of others, or believes that uh, that others are envious of him or her.
0: Yeah, whereas a star can admire them just as as role models, rather than kind of being jealous, really.
1: Yeah, and then the last one is that they show arrogant, haughty behaviors or attitudes.
0: I love the word haughty. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so whereas, whereas, like, star would be like they've got to be se- they can be self confident, but able to be generous to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. so it's kind of an interesting collection of criteria. So there's other features that support the diagnosis other than just these criteria. So the things you'd look out for is like someone's very sensitive to injury from criticism or defeat. It might not be seen outwardly, but it would haunt them for a long time. Mm-hmm. They might react with disdain, rage or counterattack, or with social withdrawal or feigned humility. Their interpersonal relationships are frequently impaired because there's need for admiration. Yeah. And like they just have this lack of ability to take criticism and so where you see that is in like vocational vocation mm. functioning, where they just they can kind of not be successful because they just don't take on what they need to and yeah. so they can't improve yeah or people or like managers kind of go, well, you know I don't want you in a high place because I can't work with you that yeah. thing.
1: and I think the thing with with these criteria and I mean it's like with any of the personality disorders, it's about the how extreme each of these mm. things are. So, like, I, I feel like because narcissism is talked about a fair bit that then some people go, oh, maybe, like, maybe I have a little bit of that or whatever. Mm. But things like, you know, requires excessive admiration. It's not – it's really excessive. It's mm. – it's the you the know, for level. A, in the disorder level. At the disorder level, it's, you know – um, someone requiring a lot of praise for a really simple task, or for that praise to continue for days or yeah. weeks, or it's at that really high level. And I feel like sometimes reading through these criteria, it doesn't it, capture just how intense some yeah, of those and things like can that, be. Like
0: that need for emotions, is never satiated.
1: Yeah, yeah just seeking it in multiple places yeah. all the time.
0: Yeah, so in terms of like comorbid symptoms, so like that means when you've got two different symptoms together. So if they get criticised, you might see them present with dysthymia as well as narcissism mm-hmm. or depression. And grandiosity kind of is associated with like hypermanic mood. And grandiosity seems to be the key defining feature mm. of of narcissism. Apparently it's also associated with anorexia nervosa, which I thought I was... Very, I didn't quite understand that. So, I mean, maybe, Uh, maybe that's like in
1: uh, yeah, maybe in terms of the sort of um, perfectionism intensity of the like idealized self. Yeah, kind of aspiring to. But I wouldn't. It's interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't pair those. Yeah,
0: I mean, uh, maybe you could make an argument for like, well, you know, I'm, I'm the the feminine ideal because. Like over 90% of people with anorexia, yeah, uh, women that you know, maybe there's sort of some kind of like I'm better than everyone else because I'm thin or something, but mm. I don't know. Um, the other thing they, they talk about, uh, DSM saying that uh, substance use, particularly cocaine, or yeah. they actually notes cocaine, which is interesting because in Australia, we don't have a lot of cocaine in the country, mm. so it's it's less prevalent as a problem. And so narcissism is also associated with other cluster B personalities and also paranoid yeah. personality disorder. So, just some basic stats 50 to 75% are male. So, estimates around zero to 6% of the population mm-hmm. and around 2% in community or clinical samples. They estimate it's more than doubled as a disorder in the United States in the past two decades. Mm. So, which I thought was interesting. And, like I just I wonder, we won't probably get time to do it today, but like this sort of overlap between narcissism and social media. Yeah. I think it's a very interesting phenomenon. Yeah, I think it certainly breeds it mm. uh, or reinforces it. I yeah. Think. So, although I think there's a lot of overlap between narcissism and, and neuroticism. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Fragile core.
0: Yeah. Fragile core. (laughs) Yeah. So, what I thought I'd do is I'll just talk a little bit about just some interesting things, the things that I thought were interesting that I came across in the background about this disorder. So, the theorist Millen notes that aside from people with exceptional wealth and people in, say, like royal families, Mm. narcissism has only really been recently recognized as a problem Mm -hmm. and a common problem in the 20th century as compared to, say, like, Cluster A personality disorders, yeah. which have been sort of like eighteen hundreds or seventeen hundreds or something mm. like that, and or you know or histrionic, like we're talking about, like when they were talking yeah. about your wandering food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. The um and so we're up to DSM five, Diagnostic Statistical Manual five, which is a big book of psychiatric disorders, yeah. and narcissism wasn't in the first two editions, mm. which I didn't realize. I thought that was really interesting. It was put into the third in nineteen seventy eight and interestingly it wasn't put in on the basis of empirical studies
2: yeah
0: right it was it committee. was committee it was by a committee mm. of psychiatrists and psychologists who reached consensus on aspects of the disorder so that's fascinating mm. It's a whole pot in and of self empirical studies show grandiosity and lack of empathy as were the key features uh as we've been talking about it is in the d s m five but not in the international equivalent, which is the i c d ten and was had been suggested to be dropped for the d s m five in questioning of whether it's perhaps an American or western pathology yeah, so i don't know the reasons why they were thinking of dropping it for five. do you know that
1: no i i don't know i didn't know didn't it makes sense anymore. in terms of the cultural element, yeah. but a lot of the content of the DSM, well, all of the content of the DSM is it's really
0: cultural. skewed towards Western. Western cultures. Yeah. So, I mean, so the, so just to get into that cultural stuff. So, they think that maybe it's more of a Western hmm. pathology. And the theory behind that is that it only becomes evident at the higher levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So, if you don't know what Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, is imagine a triangle. At the bottom of the triangle, the basic physiological and survival needs Food, water. As you go up the triangle, the next level is safety and security. Then the next level is love and belonging. So like relationships and friends. Next one is self-esteem. Mm-hmm. So feeling accomplished. And then right at the tippy top of the triangle is self-actualization, achieving one's full potential. So if you're as an individual or in a society navigating famine and disease, yeah. you're not really worried about whether you're arrogant or not? No. <laughs> No. I mean, or like whether you're the best or not, this idea that once you as a society move past that level and into self actualization, then pathology related to that quest of self actualization would become evident yeah. or more evident. Yeah. Um, I also
1: saw some things around sort of individualist versus collectivist yep. societies as well. That
0: you take your my next bit. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in a self aggrandizing individualistic culture like the United States or Australia, you'd be more at risk of it. So narcissism in the United States talks about being exhibitionist narcissism. You know, you're allowed to speak about your accomplishments, but say in a collectivist culture like Japan, mm. there's this kind of closet narcissism because their culture teaches the opposite pattern of expression. Yep. So you attribute personal accomplishment to the support of the group, mm. not to the self. Not to the self, yeah. Yeah. So they had a quote from this very successful baseballer in Japan Mm. saying, thanks to the good advice of my coaching and encouragement of my teammates and fans, I was fortunate enough to beat this record. Yeah. So, which is very sort of selfless. Mm. And I mean, as everyone would know, you sort of see narcissism in professions that are more respected or more... Famous, particularly like TV movie stars.
1: Yeah, public sort of professions. Yeah,
2: Yeah.
0: and then I think also like things like the law and medicine Mm. where there's high value placed on them. Yeah. And also I think high level of intellect required. Mm. Yeah. So if you're naturally, like if you're actually smart and almost always right, Mm. you're going to get narcissistic. Yeah. Because you're going to
1: assume uh, that that that's the case
0: because you can assume that you're right most of the time that will be correct yeah so there is a level of adaptiveness with narcissism and narcissistic personality disorders and it's more complicated than with other disorders so if you think about self-regard that's on a continuum too little regard for yourself it's not adaptive you feel inferior if if you've got too much you're arrogant yes if you feel too superior you're arrogant if you imagine a u shape in your head on the left side of the u um, the, the top left of the U is a low self-regard. It's highly maladaptive. It's paralyzing, unworthy. But as you move to the middle, the maladaptiveness drops and, and you're right in the middle. It's a moderate, normal amount of self-regard. It's sort of adaptive. You can relate to people. You can take on criticism. Yeah. But you're also like, you know, like I'm doing okay. Mm. That kind of stuff. But then as you continue to move to the far right of the U, this the maladaptiveness increases as you as you go across to the right. And that's that very high self-regard, if that yeah. kind of makes sense. So healthy narcissists are in the middle, self-confident, social. You've got empathy to others, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, and I always think about therapy for people who are depressed and anxious, so not narcissists, yeah. is about teaching them to be healthily narcissistic mm. and kind of like – you know putting themselves first and doing that kind of stuff yeah so we're ser- sort of
1: boosting their sense of self-worth yeah and
0: allowing yeah. them to kind of go you know what i want to take a day off so yeah to take that day off yeah you know and that's or like, i did okay at that yeah or i did yeah. okay at that Or oh, you know what you did actually pretty good yeah it's pretty amazing that you managed to survive all that yeah know, that kind of stuff. so
1: yeah that makes sense
0: Shall we go into some theory and history yes I think you're first for this one. I am too. Sorry. So I thought I'd just start with, like, kind of basically the roots of the word narcissism. So there's a Greek mythological figure of Mm Narcissus. The story goes that he rejects the advances of the nymph Echo and as punishment falls in love with his own reflection. And I read in one version he becomes a flower that bears his name. But then in another version, another text, it said that he. He was loved by everyone but refused to love anyone mm. in return. And so a goddess, Aphrodite, falls and curses him. And he falls in love with his own reflection. And then because he's pining after what he can't have, he falls into the water and yeah. drowns.
1: Yeah, that's the version I've heard. Yeah. I hadn't heard the flower one. Yeah, I did not the flower <laughs> one.
0: It doesn't quite – I don't quite get it. Anyway, no. but so this basically – the moral of this is like that narcissists are unaware of the self-love and the impact that it has on others – yeah. And it, that it leads to desperation and loneliness. And, and this is actually even like sort of referenced in sort of some religions and things mm. like that as well. So, yeah. and what's interesting, like unlike say borderline personality, which we talked about a lot, or the sk- cluster A personalities, mm. there wasn't really much of a biological no. element.
1: No, no, there's not. Which is interesting in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Like, I mean, I imagine there's like, I would imagine there's like a, maybe a temperament, Element a little bit like you'd think
1: so. Well, I've got a little bit around sort of um early relationships and attachments to talk about, but there's yeah, there's not much about sort of infancy or anything like that that you might see in some of the other theories with that temperament
0: kind of stuff yeah. going on. Yeah, like whereas like you know schizotypal is kind of like on this spectrum, and yeah. And say schizoids on this spectrum with schizophrenia, mm. and that you can sort of it's quite clear there's something yeah amiss biologically. However, you would characterize that, yeah, and say in the histrionic or borderline and sort
1: of reactivity, and there's a reactivity, yeah.
0: but not so much. No, in in the theories. If if you do know of any research that counteracts that, then let mm. us know at Two Shrinks Pod. Um, so really, like, narcissists are interesting, they have a tough job. Perfection is binary, either you are, you aren't, and so if you're imperfect, you're nothing, yeah, and people must admire. Them or they must submit because, like, if you're not meeting a narcissist ego ideal, then you're tarnishing them, yeah, like you're tarnishing their self, and that leads to chronic feelings of emptiness or shame. Hmm. So, so what's interesting, they need ways of dealing with this with information so they can either deny or repress incongruent information or they can rationalize it and construct alternative realities that can draw on the substance of events but changes their meaning or significance. Mm -hmm. So excuses, blunders. And then if that works, and this replaces the previous version of events, it becomes this new working model of reality. Yeah, And can also put subtle spin on events. That they were right along as part of a grand plan and the others would get convinced of this. So like I I read a lot about politics Mm. and like reading that made me think of a particular... (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> American politician and just like how sort of apt that seems to be Yeah, um, for this like kind of confusing set of like, but hang on. That's how does just, this make sense? This is completely at odds with reality, mm. but nope. And they sort of have this like role reversal where narcissists would say that they're not exploiting others. They should be happy and flattered that I'm consorting with them. Hmm. Right? I don't make mistakes. I'm a visionary that no one else understands.
1: So they're the desirable one who's leading the
0: way. Yeah, and yeah. you can sort of see that in like in a in sort of pop culture depictions of like artists. So it's like I'm a visionary and all this kind of stuff, and they're like they're not doing anything, mm. you know. And they might actually have some talent, but they're not actually going out and executing it and doing anything. It's like enough. Just talking trait. about
1: the the talent rather than yeah
0: yeah. So I'm going to talk. I'll just quickly run through psychodynamic, and you're going to talk about
1: interpersonal and attachment.
0: So, we're going to talk about just some theories on understanding these disorders. So, like, basically, like, yes, we've talked a little bit about theory, but we're going to talk much more theory-centered rather than just sort of the characteristics of the disorder. Mm -hmm. So, it it should be interesting, like, because it's quite a rich set of writing around this disorder. So, Freud only wrote one paper Mm. on narcissism, and he linked it with parental overvaluation. So, thinking that the most vulnerable would have been only children mm. or the oldest male children in a family. Mm. So you can think about that in a cultural yeah. thing. And there's two key thinkers in psychoanalysis. Kernberg, who, I'm assuming it's a he, who talking about narcissism as a defensive organisation, conceptions of themselves or other objects, so other people, is not integrated. It's just like binary, all or nothing. Mm-hmm. So this results in rapidly changing emotions and what they call identity diffusion. So they fuse the ideal self and the self-image into one, and this distorts reality but allows for a greater sort of stability in their personality or continuity. Mm -hmm. So you get this, like, grandiosity and omnipotence. They're brilliant ahead of their time. Their need for affirmation comes from the fusing of the ideal other and self-image. So if someone's imperfect, this is incongruent with their self-image, and so they're ridiculed. So you can think about narcissists would ridicule other people, mm. that kind of thing. And so they talk about in this: the family environment's key. They they might have cold or indifferent caretakers that damages the self-concept, leading to a sort of inferior, inadequate self-concept, and that leads to a defense mechanism. The family might supply this by saying that oh, you know, the child has a special talent, they're genius. And this offsets parental rejection or neglect and provides a refuge from inferiority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you can imagine like a parent who's, for whatever reason, is differently attaching to the child and is colder and Yeah. but then would find a genuine source of attachment around, say, one particular skill that the child has.
1: Yeah. Sort of praising that achievement. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You can sort of think about like sports, sports yeah. families or something like that. Yeah. So you can sort of see how that could naturally occur. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Grandiose self is predominant. It hides the inferior part. This is kind of what I was talking about before. And then they talk about this interesting thing of like an oral rage, this aggression that was originally directed at caretakers who are unwilling to give the unconditional love Mm -hmm. can just be triggered off if someone in their adult life withholds compliments or, or criticizes. Right. So... And the more fragile the grandiose self, the more sensitive they are, and the more easily the rage is brought to the surface. Hmm. So that that all fits really nicely. Yeah. Uh, cohort the other cohort the other author talks about the grandiose self as not pathological, but it's actually normal in development and normal with normal empathy. It's given up. And incessant infantile demands develop to realistic ambitions. And this author was saying, well, if maternal empathy at this stage is defective, then it isn't given up, and so it stays as a defence. Yeah, which I thought was quite a interesting kind of thing too. Yeah, like because yes. I think there's an element of it is quite adaptive to be a bit narcissistic at times.
1: Yeah, yeah, but it's when it goes too far yeah. or overrides the rights of others that there's a problem. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So from the interpersonal perspective that sort of came along after the psychodynamic perspective and really the focus for people who who approach narcissistic personality disorder from this angle is around how it plays out relationally and how those relational patterns developed. So a lot of the writing was was about the way of relating of someone who has this disorder. So, you know, they're competitive and boastful and pushy. They seek out superiority, that, you know, entitlement is the core thing, that they, they're the exception to the rule. They're the one who has to be treated specially. They're the ones that should get out of, of any sort of consequences, that sort of thing. And what I found interesting was was the, a bit of discussion around how it plays out in different types of relationships mm-hmm. so that in intimate relationships they might act angrily towards their partner because the intimacy that they have makes them feel vulnerable and so then to defend themselves against that feeling of vulnerability and that sort of sense that someone else has perceived that sort of vulnerable core Mm. they then lash out angrily
0: to push them away
1: push them away and then also it can go in the direction of family violence and things like that as well Mm. sort of angry reaction can be that extreme in families then they often view their family members as what they add to them as people so, add to the person with narcissistic personality disorder as a person. Hmm. So, children are valuable because they portray a particular image to society or hmm. my partner's valuable because they're beautiful or successful or whatever mm. and they then add to my sense of worth. Yeah. It's so, it's quite like, transactional.
0: Yeah. Tra- like but sort sort one of, way. <laughs> what's what's the... like? It's almost like ownership in a way. Yeah. It's like, yeah. look what I've collected.
1: Yeah. So, that's the other thing that they highlighted about that some people do... Show their narcissism with objects and mm. with, um, oh, well,
0: absolutely. Fancy
1: cars or, you know, expensive clothes, that but, sort of thing. It, or special, unique things is the other way that it can go, like things that you have to order from a, you know, bespoke tailor who only makes one per year, you know, yeah. that sort of thing that has a, a story in and it's an individual object that no one else will have, that kind of
0: Yeah. So you'd be thing. thinking about the intensity of that, because like yeah. it's like it's normal and it's okay to feel like, oh, I yeah. got, I look, look, I, I bought, I bought it, I bought a new suit, and don't yeah. I look good? Yeah. Versus kind of, yeah, uh, I don't know. You do that with everything. Do that with everything. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so then in day to day life, they can appear calm and carefree, like not bothered by things that stress other people, because they're above it. They don't have mm. to worry about making an appointment on time or paying bills or whatever, because that's for. The little people mm. or they can go the other way and appear really control in control and confident so they display their wealth and power and it's really out there so it can kind of come through in different ways
0: yeah so on that like the there's an example there's some thinking that a former prime minister of australia kevin rudd had narcissism mm. this grandiose narcissism yeah and a great example of that was he was in this interview right before the election that he ended up losing mm. And he had previously been in power as prime minister and turfed out by his own side because yeah. he was micromanaging and not really being very effective. And eventually, and he plotted revenge and got back, got back into in. power. Yeah. It's a very fascinating history yeah, if you don't know so absolutely. Politics. And this interviewer was saying, "Oh, you know, what wasn't that the like when you got deposed?" Mm. Uh, from being the Prime Minister, wasn't that the worst thing? And he goes, no, you know what, that wasn't the worst thing. The worst thing in my political life was when I attempted to win office the first time just as a local MP and I didn't do it. <laughs> and it's like, how could uh, that? Like, Yeah, how bes- could that? And so it's this kind of this narcissistic response of like, you know that worst thing that would shatter everybody else? Yes,
1: yeah, no, it wouldn't shatter me.
0: That wouldn't, It didn't shatter me. No, there, like, was like, there was thing. this other thing. There was this other thing when there's actual footage of him – um like the poor fellow like yeah <laughs> crying yeah, he, he in was parlour, devastated yeah, yeah like and completely broken so
1: yeah it's that kind of disconnect yeah between what other people might yeah yeah that that i'm separate from that
0: i'm separate um, from that that yeah. thing that was really awful no I, I managed that well yeah
1: absolutely um and then like in social situations the conversations often focus on themselves so even when other people bring up things that It always redirects this means that they tend to lack genuine friendships because people can't quite form that that bond that mutual bond they prefer to have people around them who just admire them from a distance rather than getting into that sort of dynamic and then they also often report boredom and a sense of meaninglessness that because they're special they're isolated and nothing's invigorating enough or challenging enough or anything like or special that it's enough. special enough yeah.
2: yeah
1: so in terms of the development of these kind of patterns the main theorist that was talked about was benjamin and she talked about a couple of different ways that this could develop so one fit quite nicely with the psychodynamic perspective with parent overvaluation of a child or having a need for that child to be perfect and so the the phrase that was used which I thought really captured it was his majesty the baby hmm. and that kind of thing that the their early childhood is full of love and warmth and adoration and it's entirely focused on making the child feel special hmm. and so it means though that the parent doesn't share anything of their own inner experience so then the child fails to understand that other people have their own experiences that are right. separate and that they might have their own needs because everything's focused on It's like a disorder of
0: egocentricity, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah, of where that that focus is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then as they become more independent, the parents are quite permissive. They indulge their children. They let them do whatever they want, they also remove any barriers to things that might be challenging. So, they never kind of um, have to make mistakes or learn that they can't do something because the parents make sure that all those obstacles are removed. Mm. Um, and they don't show them the negative consequences of their behaviour. So, if they do something that um, to other parents they might then tell them off for, that doesn't happen. Yeah, It's just sort of
2: let go.
0: Yeah, I mean like in pop culture I would think about I know you haven't watched Game of Thrones, but mm-hmm. like the Joffrey, uh, he's sort of the prince and then becomes the king, and because yeah. he's this prince, like he's doted on, di- doted on, but also like he can do whatever he wants and be awful to anyone. Yeah, and nothing will, happen. and 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 no one can touch him. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. It's
1: that sort of thing, and then because of that, they then learn that other people are there to serve their own needs. Yeah, like you know. Mum and dad will make sure that everything's fine. it's actually
0: kind of a realistic assumption. Exactly, yeah. Yeah.
1: And then the other way that this theorist proposes that it can happen is that parents are rejecting, devaluing and invalidating. Yeah. And or they use the child to meet their own needs. So a little bit like a narcissist would do with their family, that kind of the child serves a function. Yeah. And so in response the child withdraws and creates this internal world that's Mm – characterized by idealized ideas about the ideal child that they are, the ideal parent that they could have, and then they create this kind of internal sanctuary that buffers against the reality of the world. Hmm. This is what life could be like. And then that becomes kind of a bit bit blurry. Yeah. So there was some research done into the different types of parenting and what traits of narcissism are then found. Yep. In adults later on. And I'll just run it re- through it really quickly because I found it quite interesting that it was different for boys and girls. Uh, so, the kids who were overindulged, this was the one that was related to the most narcissistic traits. Yep. Um, so, it was related to entitlement, exhibitionism for both sexes. And then for boys, it was related to um, authority and exploitativeness. And for girls with a sense of self sufficiency. Over-domineering parents, that was related to entitlement and exhibitionism for both genders.
0: So what do you mean over-domineering?
1: So being overly strict, being controlling, intimidating, that sort of thing. Yep. And exploitativeness for girls. Uh, And then over-protecting, so that sort of cosseting behaviour, wasn't related to anything for girls. But for boys it was related to entitlement, self-sufficiency and vanity. And then over permissiveness of letting kids do whatever they want was related to exploitativeness for boys. So there's kind of different patterns of mm. parenting that then sort of fostered these different different traits.
0: Mm. And so, like, you often think about narcissism as a male, like, yeah, it's more male. It's more male. But it's not, I wouldn't say it's like, like heavily male. No. Um,
1: well, I mean, like, stats wise, it's. Sort of fifty to seventy
0: yeah. five. Yeah. So like, but yeah, it's sort of interesting. Like the expression of narcissism can come po-
1: out in different ways.
0: Yeah, for different genders. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And the last bit on attachment was splitting up grandiose narcissism with vulnerable narcissism. Yeah. So I don't think we've talked about vulnerable narcissism before, but essentially it's got far less of those kind of grandiose overtones. That it's more. It's more subtle and that fragility is closer to the surface, basically. And so attachment-wise, they found that grandiose narcissism is related to avoidant attachment, so pushing people away, pushing caregivers away, and it involves positive self-appraisal, so thinking of themselves as sort of wonderful and denying that there's any distress in relationships Mm -hmm, with mm -hmm. caregivers, whereas vulnerable narcissism is associated with a fearful preoccupied style. So needing to have that person around and checking that everything's all right.
0: Because if you're avoidant of relationships, you can think that they're all good. Yeah. Right, whereas if you're... And you don't need them. You don't need them. You don't need them. Yeah.
1: Whereas with the preoccupied, you've got that kind of thinking of yourself negatively, being distressed when there's something wrong in a relationship, but then also you can tend to avoid relationships because they're scary. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So if you're not sure what we're talking about, attachment, we did a whole pod. We did. I think it was pod. It's my favourite. Four. Yeah. Um, and Amy loves attachment, so. Yeah.
1: I had to bring it up this
0: <laughs> time as well. <laughs> no, but it's, it's very interesting that that fits really naturally. And it think does. I think that, that's what's really interesting about this disorder is that there are a few different approaches and all of them give like a richness to it. Yeah. Uh, and
1: they all kind of fit nicely and in a way that's kind of logical and a bit of that.
0: Yeah. I love that word. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is a great word.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's nice.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So have you got um, So I was going to
0: talk about the cognitive perspective. So thanks for that. I mean, that was okay. really great. The cognitive perspective. So it's really this section's more, not so much about the development of the disorder, but more how... The disorder presents and functions on a cognitive level, a cognitive style. So, opposite to a compulsive individual, a narcissist can't see the trees for the forest, Mm -hmm. right? So, compulsive is the forest for the trees, right? They fail to fill in the details. Mm -hmm. Everything is painted with these like big, broad strokes. Yeah. Compulsive is plagued with the detail, right? And the narcissist plunges ahead. So the narcissists forget about the work and the detail Mm. required. Yes, oh, we're going to do this stuff. We're going to do these research projects and and we're going to do these things in this organisation. We're going to do all this kind of stuff without any kind of attention to what that may involve, right? How you would actually do it. Yeah, Whereas compulsive would be so afraid of... the A compulsive has fantasies about fears to prevent error. Like their fantasies serve that function, whereas a narcissist's fantasies are of just wishes to be successful and abide Mm. right? And the cognitive distortions. So if you've ever gone to cognitive therapy, if you read about cognitive therapy, there's all this kind of ideas around like the way in which we think is distorted Mm. in in particular sets of emotions, and then if you can kind of. Change that distorted thinking uh, from black and white thinking to, like, say, grey, then you get a shift in mood, stuff like that. So, narcissists are definitely prone to this good or all or, or good or bad yeah. about themselves or about others. I'm
1: when, perfect, I'm nothing.
0: Yeah, particularly yeah. when they're stressed, it becomes dichotomous. They're worthy and perfect or they're worthless and powerless, mm-hmm. and that's usually when reality breaks through. Mm. And so, if you're a therapist and you punch through on that yeah. thing, then they're filled with just awful negative feelings. And with others, they're like completely loyal one time Mm -hmm. and then the next time they've possibly, others have possibly conspired with their enemy. Yeah. And that might actually be true because they if they've genuinely been horrible to others or they may actually just construct like some kind of house of cards. Mm. And so it's kind of this interesting thing where the thing that they're concerned about may actually be kind of true. Mm. But
1: not for the reasons that they... Think. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, that kind of stuff. Like yeah. and in some of the stuff you were talking about before, where they kind of like, where you're talking about like the avoided personality like, well, mm. I can cope by myself. It's like, yeah. well, they like, kind of actually can. Yeah. yeah. So, like, yeah. and so that distortion is kind of self perpetuating. Yeah, self self-perpetu- perpetuating. Self perpetuating is a great phrase. Yeah. Mm. So they search for differences with others and then they build on them because they can't be the same as other people. They have mm. to be unique. Have to be unique. And then they need to support feeling superior because they secretly doubt that they are. And so they search for differences. Yeah. It's kind of picking apart other people mm. to make themselves feel better. It yeah. really just reflects that insecurity, you know, themselves. Yeah. So, they have core beliefs. So, these are like universal feelings. About, since I'm special, I deserve special dispensation, privileges and prerogatives. Mm-hmm. I'm superior to others and they should acknowledge this. Whereas then they have their conditional beliefs, which is like an if-then statement, right? So, like if others don't recognize my special status, they should be punished. Yeah. I strive at all times to demonstrate my superiority. Already. And if I'm not perfect, I'm nothing. Mm. These kind of conditional kinds of things. Yeah. So this cognitive style and you can still see how this it emerges with the defensive needs to and supports this grandiosity, right? And the fantasy is always about future goals, getting success and admiration, and it's replayed in the head. And this kind of is thought to extend the efforts of early caretakers. Mm-hmm. But also, like, also in the past, facts get reorganized to support their notions. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Remember the past as they wanted it to occur, not as it happened. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I won the popular vote in the United States of America <laughs> when he didn't. He didn't, yes. Yeah. So, like, that comes up. And so, it might not be called lies because the emphasis of events shift, so they use fantasy, and so that results in little empathy for others because they're fixed on a future outcome. The work to be done is for others to do; mm. it's not for them to do. It's sort of below them. And if it fails, it's not their fault. It's, it's the workers' fault. The workers' fault. They didn't right? do the work. Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of like it's it's really really sound mm. logical system for them that that you could see is like impossible, like very difficult to penetrate. Yeah,
1: it's circular.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, and if it, and if they've if they've delegated it, it's already accomplished, mm. right? And so you can see why people would then just get controlled and pressured. It's like, well, but it's already accomplished. Like, why well, haven't done it yet? Mm. What's going on? Look, we can't go do a whole pot on narcissism without having a discussion about Donald Trump, of course. Um, I think that if any, like, I think that particularly some of this latter part of the pot, I think you can kind of see how it would fit fairly. Fairly well. Yeah. Fairly neatly. What I thought was really interesting was I, I did read and I found this – there was an article or an interview with Alan Francis and he he was one of the people who wrote the original – Ah, uh, the crit- original article. The, the original symptom list mm-hmm. for DSM in, the 19, in 1978. And so – He was quoted as saying that Trump is the undisputed poster boy for narcissism. He demonstrates in pure form every single symptom described in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders for NPD, which I wrote in 1978. Hmm. What was interesting is at this time, this was, I think it was before... I can't remember exactly when it was, whether it was before the election or after the election. But he, he talks about the, lots of successful people are extremely narcissistic without being mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Most celebrities, politicians, writers, artists, lawyers, doctors. They'd be functional. Yeah. yeah. Right. But he, he was saying, well, to qualify for a personality, sort of an individual's selfish, unpathetic, preening must be accomplished by significant distress or impairment. And he was saying, well, Trump certainly causes this in others. But but his narcissism doesn't affect him that way, mm. and he talks about that this narcissistic personality sort of holds a fragile place within the diagnostic universe and was potentially going to be eliminated, but didn't.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I have some thoughts on that, which is I actually think it does make uh, give him clinically clinical distress. I mean, this is from someone like I've never met him. Yeah, right. mm.
1: which is the whole big thing when there was those series of articles that came out yeah. about this. It was it was sort of backwards and forwards whether you can diagnose someone or not. Yeah, um, And I remember being that quite a few of the arguments for diagnosing him from a distance was that because he places so much of his internal world mm. in the public eye and online that then he's actually displaying enough mm. f- to be able to sort of fill in those gaps, he's displaying yeah. enough of those symptoms and enough information.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would say that he certainly seems to mm. fit the criteria, and I think that the diagnostic sort of like he's the, this author saying, well, he doesn't meet it because he doesn't have clinically significant distress, and like in terms of, and that could be clinically significant distress. We think about in terms of like actual distress. Yeah. Or, or like impairment, impairment in functioning. Mm. And I would argue that now that more time has gone on that it's kind of pretty clear that he does have a lot of distress. It just yeah. manifests itself in anger and and it's sort of, and it seems to be. And me those
1: anger, out, like angry outbursts have a negative impact on his functioning in his
0: occupation. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. And So
1: even though he's still president. Yeah it has that that impact on yeah. policy and things yeah, like that. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, yeah. If, you,
0: if you take like a, you know, and if there's any, any sort of Republican listeners <laughs> in, in the United States listening and stuff like you, I'm sure you'll get your back up about this and that's certainly not my intention. But if you compare Donald Trump's administration on Say policy outcomes Mm. with his peers, so his peers are Obama and Bush and Clinton Mm. and Reagan and so on. Right? Then he hasn't been very successful Mm. in terms of the number of like policy navigated through the Congress. Mm. Right? Which is it's one way of measuring a presidency. I'm sure there's other ways. I'm sure there's lots of people are very pleased with the way in which he goes about what he's doing, Mm. but if you look at that kind of governing level. Those kind of
1: outcomes. Then
0: then like analysis, like I read a piece on the website 538, which talks about that he's actually not achieved that much, Mm. Um, particularly like if you talk about the first hundred days there was that marker. And I think there's been a amount of work on that. So I think you could make an argument for it. But then again, you know, look, I've never met the guy. So, you know, doing clinical interview with him. I haven't done that. So no, apparently we're <laughs> apparently we're not meant to diagnose. So but um and, and then also like I did talk about uh Kevin Rudd and there was an interesting there's an interesting article, I'll put a link to it, where they so the Conservative Party in Australia was actually called the Liberal Party. Very and, confusing. For international confusing. listeners. <laughs> Just, <Yeah. laughs> so and so they were the opposition to Kevin Rudd, who was in the Labour Party, and a psychiatrist actually wrote um, mm. wrote them a strategy document labeling Kevin Rudd as a narcissist that is a grandiose narcissist and And so they sort of talk about less as a psychiatric disease, more as a destructive character deficit. That They were suggesting that this guy was held together by one key strut, an absolute conviction of intellectual superiority over everyone else. And if you kick out that strut, he will collapse. Mm. And so they kind of used that. So they they said that, well, you know, he'd be threatened by a rival in any of his fields. Mm -hmm. He'd be obsessively paranoid and ready to retaliate to real or perceived threats. And he would suffer from excessive suspicion Mm. And so, they politically, tactically exploited that by promoting the idea that he was merely a caretaker prime minister that would, that would be removed um, by his colleagues once the election had been won. Mm. And so, they exploited that yeah. and they won the election. Yeah. And he, and his election was... His campaign was massively chaotic. Mm. So, it's,
1: it's interesting to see how those kind of things play out.
0: Yeah. 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 So, a bit of armchair diagnosis mm. there, but... Um, hey, it's our pod. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I feel like those kind of examples are quite useful in terms of understanding what it can look like. Yeah. You know, the other option is to go down the diagnosing movie characters and yeah. whatever, but, yeah.
0: I came across a list. Gordon yeah. Gordon Gecko in Wall Street,
2: which I don't yeah.
0: know, which is the Michael Douglas character. Yeah. And then Catherine Trammell in Basic Instinct. Yeah. Which was the Sharon Stone, which I... Yeah. I would not have picked that.
1: Michael have. in The Office.
0: Yeah, they talk about that Michael yeah. in The Office, which is the Steve Carell's. Yeah. And House in House MD. Yeah. I think he would definitely fit with that, that narcissistic kind of thing.
1: And what's the main character? Did you ever watch Third Rock from the Sun? Uh, it's yes. about the aliens.
0: John Lithgow's Yeah, character. his character. Oh, really? Okay. Oh. I kind of remember it. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Yeah. And I wondered about um, Francis Underwood in House of Cards. Yeah, but then I thought maybe he's a bit more of a psychopath. But
1: yeah, he'd require further interviewing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you can you can have narcissism and lots of stuff. So absolutely, let's take a break. Sounds good. We are going to return with things, uh, short things <laughs> we came across. See you soon. Experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things. It's intuition.
1: It's intuition
0: which is really based on just... uh are <laughs> the break,
1: Amy. Your brain just goes for a walk.
0: Oh, God. <laughs> so this is the segment where we just say thanks for listening. Yeah. Um, Muchos gracias. Muchos gracias. And uh, if you do want to follow us on Twitter, you can, uh, 2 Or you can email us at 2 at (laughs) gmail.com. She's just stirring me in the background. Or you can look at our website and that kind of stuff. But if you are interested in contacting us, please do let us know. And we will be finishing the Personality disorders series soon enough. And we'll be in the hunt for uh, topics to cover.
2: We
1: already have a list that's sure to be crossed off and discounted and ratings
0: on iTunes oh yes please do and comments yeah please do rate and uh, review the show if you can Uh, you can do that through your phone after the episode has played or I I don't think you can do it during I think you can but please do that because that helps people find the show Mm -hmm. um, or just tell a friend if you found it interesting
2: Mm. or no (laughs) (laughs) what nothing (laughs) you're killing me uh, <laughs> I know.
1: <laughs> Two shrinks But there are so many ways that you could...
0: <laughs> I'm cutting it. Uh. I'm cutting it. <laughs> so we're back. And uh, this is actually... I'm really
1: disappointed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is the second time we've had to record this. Because... Uh, technology. Apple technology.
1: And it's really terrible because you all missed out on some wonderful... Otter banter
0: <laughs> it was really it was it was special
1: it was uh, pretty special i remember it but i feel like it wouldn't have the same thing the second time around
0: you know it, it was so special but it probably we could doesn't just <laughs> doesn't, it doesn't it's not worth retelling this, 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 this is the, this is the part of the pod where it's the things we came across is our little segment where we like to take our serious psychology hats off and
1: if they were ever on <laughs>
0: indulge in some flimsy
1: whimsy whimsy
0: not flimsy. <laughs> whimsy, whimsy? <laughs> you go come on chop chop
1: okay so the article i came across is about food and about whether we enjoy it more if we've prepared it ourselves or not uh it's called does self-prepared food taste better effects of right. food preparation on liking
0: i if i cook something mm-hmm. yeah. like i'm frequently like super critical of it though
1: I think you go one way or the other. Do I? <laughs> yeah. And yourself? I rarely think that my savoury food is amazing. Yeah. But I work a lot harder at the sweet stuff. <laughs> <Like> <laughs> I will do it multiple times to perfect it and then be quite satisfied with myself.
0: So, so that kind of fits with what you're about to tell us, I think.
1: It <laughs> Kind of does. Um so Simone Dole and colleagues looked at, at this and they wanted to examine whether self-preparation of food increases the liking of both healthy and unhealthy food mm-hmm. so to see if there was a difference. Uh, they linked it with the IKEA effect, which is that people like and overvalue objects they've created themselves. Uh, so it's something about investing that time and effort into it then we like that more.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So what they did was they had 120 female participants and they got them to take part in four stages of the study randomly assigned. So they had to prepare a milkshake um, following a recipe that was healthy and uh, that had sort of fruit and did stuff it in it.
0: What kind? Of, like I was gonna say.
1: It was yeah. They gave the recipe. Yep. In in the article. Anyway, no yeah. <laughs> and it was it was berries and stuff like that. So. It didn't have any added yeah. sugar. Um, and then the unhealthy condition was a chocolate milkshake made with chocolate and ice cream and
0: Like chocolate stuff. syrup, chocolate powder? What are we talking here?
1: I think it was syrup from memory, but really? you're pushing it a bit. See, yeah.
0: I'm, I would always go powder over syrup if I was going to make a milkshake. Anyways.
1: That's, I mean, would you make Is a milkshake really with fresh berries?
0: No, that's a smoothie.
1: Yeah, we'll see. So they counted that as a
0: milkshake. Uh, anyway.
2: Let's
1: we'll see this... Methodological
2: issues.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so in the healthy, there were two healthy conditions one where they made the milkshake themselves, one where they were provided with one that had been made, same recipe, same for unhealthy. Uh, And then they also asked them to rate their liking of the milkshake, perceived healthiness, calorie content, dietary restraint, BMI, and amount of milkshake that they consumed was also measured. Although I think they were unaware of that. So there were a lot of results, which if you're a stats nerd, was quite satisfying. Just Mm -hmm. how many, you know, mediating effects and things like that. But I'm just going to go through a couple of my favorites, which I know is not scientific reporting, but...
0: Uh, we can yeah. cherry pick what we want.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yep. So essentially in the healthy condition, participants preferred the milkshake they made themselves mm-hmm. and in the unhealthy condition, it didn't make a difference. They just liked it, <laughs> <laughs> which kind of fits with life experience. Um, so they also thought in the healthy condition that the milkshake that they'd made mm-hmm. was healthier and had less car- calories mm-hmm. in it than the one that had been made by someone else and – for the unhealthy one they thought the milkshake was less healthy if they made it and but they thought it had the same amount of calories. Yeah. So there were some kind of differences between those two. But really the message I took from it was if you want to eat healthily and enjoy it you shouldn't
0: make stuff yourself. Well I mean like it fits with like that narcissistic thing of like well you know I I I I've, I
1: make the best smoothie.
0: I well I've made look at me I've made the healthy option. Yeah. Yeah. Aren't I good? I'm
1: chock full of quinoa. I'm. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I didn't. I just quinoa. Like it's like it's a cue. Like it just kind of. Yeah. It's it's I don't know. I just, okay. like I always qu- qu- quinoa.
1: Quinoa. Qu- qu-
0: qu- yeah. long term <laughs> listeners of this of this podcast will understand. that I have a pronunciation difficulty from time to time, but of of certain words we don't mention it. Okay. <laughs> well, no, actually, I just edit it out. Most yeah. the time, so <laughs>
1: he sits at home in the dark and re-records particular words and edits oh, them I do in. do have
0: one or two lights on. <laughs> so uh, sh- shall I? Go? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> Got more to talk about No so the, I had You
1: can't have found another article while you were waiting for the thing to. Add. I was.
0: I actually was googling psychology of computer rage. No. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm too angry. You can do that next time. Uh, I can do it next time. So I uh, continue on my long-term love of psychology article type research articles with uh, sort of jokes in them. Sure. Uh, so the questionnaire that I use all the time in clinical work, if you've seen me as a client of mine or have sat next to me at work or in some kind of workshop.
1: I've said, hey, Hunter, how are you? How
0: are you? <laughs> I've talked. I will have said, you, we should use the HADS, the Hospital mm. Anxiety and Depression Scale, which is really great. Well, I, I found it a great scale. It's 14 items, it measures anxiety, 7 items depression, 7 items. It's really relatively easy to fill out for people. And, yeah. Anyway, so I was... Doing some research recently and I'm um, involved in a research project where, we, where they've looked at this questionnaire and I came across Nagel saying the hospital anxiety and depression scale, the HADS, is dead, but like Elvis, there will still be sightings. And it's by Coin yep. and Coins. <laughs> <Yeah>. Very satisfying. <laughs> This, I was this article kind of goes into they've done some research, very, very good science. there's been a lot of science on this stuff where they've looked at the factor structure of this questionnaire and ripped it to shreds. and is it well it just sort of says it's inconsistent. Some say say okay yes, there's anxiety and depression, no others say say, well, it's just one general thing of stress. Other one says there's like there's three subscales. I won't go into it. I'm a bit annoyed about this finding, I have to say. Yeah. So but they didn't they to critique the authors, they didn't actually suggest a better scale to mm-hmm. use. And the DAS twenty-one, which is used by GPs and lots of people, yeah. doesn't because it's freely available at the Black Dog Institute, mm-hmm. doesn't also have a consistent factor structure. So maybe okay. the problem with the question is. But actually, that's just a a detour on the way to scanning dead salmon in fMRI machine highlights the risk of red herrings. (laughs)
1: Sounds like a professional, well thought out.
0: So I think this is actually just a poster that was presented somewhere. Neuroscientist Craig Bennett purchased a whole Atlantic salmon, took it to a lab in Dartmouth, put it into an fMRI machine and used it to study the brain. So the idea We've all was, been there. Yeah, we've all been there. We've, we've all just said, you know what? I'm just getting a fish and put it in a really expensive scanner. Yeah. So they put the... They were putting it in the scanner because they were wanting to test... I guess, like, calibrate or, like, have a look at what would come out. Uh, They weren't
1: just screwing around with the fish?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Like, well, because, like, as the fish sat in the skin and they showed it a series of photographs. Yeah, they were screwing around with the fish. (laughs) Depicting human individuals in social situations.
1: Was the fish wearing, like, a hospital gown?
0: Uh, No, it it was not alive at the time of testing.
1: Was it wearing a hospital gown?
0: Uh, um, So, to maintain rigor of the protocol and perhaps... Also, because it was hilarious, they asked the salmon, just like a human test subject, to determine what emotion the individual in the photo must have been experiencing. <laughs> so, yep. Uh,
1: was the salmon accurate?
0: Well, what's what's interesting was they had a bit of a surprise when they got the data back. There was like a, a hot spot in the, where the brain was, and it actually looked like the fish was <laughs> thinking about what was going on. So, um, interesting. Yeah, you can you can see the red dot in the fish brain Love just it. there. <laughs> so I mean, they were sort of like scientifically, were talking about well, you know, you can get false positives from our and that that's uh, something. And how
1: can we ever know that fish are dead?
0: And that's it. Well, there's no such thing as a fish. So anyway.
1: Exactly. <laughs> I love that podcast.
0: <laughs> anyway, so that's the show. Uh, thanks for listening. And don't forget to rate and review us on wherever you get to rate and review your podcasts. That would be great. And we'll see you next time. See ya. Bye.
1: I've never seen you look look that freaked out. Mm -hmm. Or it's been
2: a while. Don't (laughs)
0: touch the dials, Amy. (laughs) Don't touch them.
2: Ooh. (laughs)